Hey everyone, Matt Robeson. This is an emergency podcast talking about the news that U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein has died. It is something that we're all still reacting to in real time. Here's Democratic leader, U.S. Senator Chuck Schumer, reacting a couple of hours ago. Serving in this chamber, and every one of them would admit they stand on Dianne's shoulders. As the nation mourns this tremendous loss, we're comforted in knowing how many mountains Diane moved, how many lives she impacted, how many glass ceilings she shattered along the way. America, America is a better place because of Senator Diane Feinstein. It also has some significant implications, some significant political and policy implications for the United States of America. I wanted to bring on Jason Sattler, known on Twitter as LOLGOP. He's a former USA Today op-ed contributor, a well-known writer and political analyst. And Jason, you've been tweeting about this from the politics angle, and I do want to get to that. There are some really important aspects that we should get into that people are going to want to focus on. But I want to start with Dianne Feinstein herself. She was an icon. She was a trailblazer. You grew up in California. This was part of your formative political experience, her being a political leader in your state. What stands out to you? I think to 1994, the year of the woman and she being the kind of the woman who led that vanguard of this is a new era of women actually having a role in the Senate. I think there was all kinds of things where she was the first to do things in the Senate. She wasn't the first woman in the Senate, but she was one of the very first. And so she was the first to do this. And she's the first. It just is remarkable in our lifetime how becoming uh, a woman senator became something that was a very big deal to something now that it seems almost trivial and hard to forget and, and in retrospect, and she was tied to uh, LGBT rights before that was something that was a, a big thing in California. It was much more normalized than it was the rest of the country. She led the, the country on that. She led the country on being very clear against the assault weapon ban. She led the country when she did the, the CIA torture report. She was a uh, just a brand name in California that cannot be, you can't disregard what the, this brand meant to the country. And everybody knew that she shouldn't run in 2018. I think there was a consensus that I don't know why they did put her on the Senate Judiciary Committee when it came around this time. But everybody also knew there was no one in California who could beat her. She was a giant of California politics and, and of international politics and what she meant to everybody as far as being a woman. What really has stood out to me as I've reflected on my experience, I was a House staffer, not a Senate staffer. So I experienced her political and government work at one step removed. But for one thing, it is possible, as you say, to chart the evolution of American politics, the evolution of political attitudes in the United States by just looking at the biography of Dianne Feinstein. Her formative political experience was serving alongside of and announcing the death of Harvey Milk. She was literally by his side, the first openly gay elected member of, of that city, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and a trailblazer for LGBT rights. She obviously was a trailblazer for women in government. I've told this story before that there was a time, and she was out of this era in American politics, where the most common pathway for women to serve in Congress or in any elected political position was to fill the seats of their deceased husbands. And this was a statistic that our Congress professor announced to us when I was in grad school. And the one of my colleagues, a woman sitting next to me, heard this and leaned over me and said, do you want to get married? But Dianne Feinstein did not follow that path. No, she no. set her own path. And she did so very bravely. 
she was she had tried to run for mayor in San Francisco and a bomb was planted at her by members of the New World Liberation Front and it didn't go off but the, the windows of another house she owned were later shot out and yet she persisted and yet she persisted through all of that and she had literally I didn't know this until I was reading eulogies literally she announced that she was done at, at, at age 45, she felt she was washed up. She was never going to take the next step. <laughs> Two hours later was when Harvey Milk was shot. In the total confusion after the shooting, the president of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, spoke. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. The suspect is Supervisor Van White. And out of that experience, she decided, no, I'm staying in this. And... She was San Francisco's mayor for 10 years, from 1978 to, to 1988. She ran against Pete Wilson in 1990, and she lost. And yet she persisted. And she won a special election for his old Senate seat in 1992. And then, the, yeah. as you alluded to, the first the year on, year 92 term. Was the year of the in, in 94, yeah. exactly. That yeah. was when she got the full term. And then she subsequently went on to be reelected, and she just surpassed the record from Barbara Mikulski as the longest serving female U.S. Senator. And so she really was, when people say she was an icon, she was a trailblazer. No, folks, she was an icon. Yeah. <laughs> she was a trailblazer. And the other thing that I think stands out to me, yes, she went through the same evolution that a lot of people went through. She went from being opposed to same-sex marriage to being very much for it, for the death penalty, to, to against it. But the thing that really stood out to me was the moral courage that she had displayed first in standing up to literal terrorists who were targeting her that she then displayed in the late 2000s when she was determined to expose the truth of what the united states had done to prisoners at guantanamo bay yeah. and she decided that was at the core of our values that it was an important function there were many naysayers powerful political forces saying you can't do this saying all the stuff that George W. Bush had used to win re-election in 2004, a lot of scaremongering. And she said, no, we need to tell the truth about this. We need to come clean. We need to turn the page. We need to make sure that we never do this again. She put out an incredible report about what this had done after 9-11. And it instituted a change that I hope will stick with America. So she made a, a remarkable contribution to uh, American politics and government. Absolutely. And uh, and came in with Barbara Boxer, who retired notably to team. And maybe the, the, the last bit of the legacy is where we are today is probably served too long. And that's is, this is the big argument about gerontocracy. I, 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 John Dingle's district, he served until he became the longest serving member. This is not unique. This is something you get that close. I don't think people want to turn back. And I, I honestly do think that was the goal of at least her staffers to get her to be the longest serving woman senator and an honor she deserved. But it, now we're in quite a predicament. here. It's a sensitivity that I think we've become used to, unfortunately, in the wake of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, where there was a yeah. sense that you deserve a place on an expanded Mount Rushmore of American politics. Yes. Your contribution yeah. is indelible. It is historic. And yet we do face some real challenges. And I, I want to talk about those. I don't think that the challenge now is necessarily what faces Gavin Newsom. Who knows? Given the, yeah. the time pressure that's on him, given the incredibly close razor thin margin in the U.S. Senate, there's a significant amount of pressure on Newsom. 
to make an appointment very fast. Not the same thing that he did with Senator Padilla, the five weeks that he took in the wake of the election of yeah. Kamala Harris as VP. He's going to do this within hours. Who knows? We're going to rush this show out. He may have this afternoon. And I think that there are political repercussions there. There's his pledge to appoint a, a black woman that he may or may not stick with. There's some momentum to say, hey, if you're going to appoint a caretaker, why not appoint Barbara Boxer? And then we'll sort it out. I think the more significant issue is the issue that you raised on Twitter about an hour and a half ago, which is we're not that far past this coming up. People forget so quickly. There is a real possibility that Republicans will leverage this moment to block an, the appointment of a replacement senator to the Judiciary Committee and thereby to block the appointment of any more Biden judges to the judiciary for the remainder of the next year. This is real. Could you just walk us through sure. what you're thinking and what the issue is? You need 60 votes to reconstitute a committee when you're in mid-session. And the Republicans, the other kind of precursor to this that everybody has to keep in mind is Republicans kept a seat open for over a year when Antonin Scalia died to deny Democrats control of the, the Supreme Court. So if you need 60 seats to, to put someone on the Judiciary Committee, what happens then if you don't have that seat filled you can't put any judge through at all. You can't move them to the floor to get votes. Now, with 50 votes or 50 plus one with the vice president, you can basically do anything in the Senate. The question there is, are there 50 plus one votes? Does the set, this comedy in the Senate break down that much where there aren't 10 Republicans to do things that, if this happens, it breaks the Senate forever, at least whenever Democrats are, because Democrats never do the same thing to Republicans. This means Republicans have given up the idea that there's ever going to be a functioning Senate ever again. That's one thing to keep in mind. And I think they'd only be willing to do that. And we'll, we'll have a, a question here is if there's any opportunity for them to deny Joe Biden a, a chance to fill a Supreme Court seat, let's say they know something about Clarence Thomas that we don't know. And I honestly think that they would not let Democrats put anyone on that seat. Would they, whether they would do that for the federal judgeships and Joe Biden has done an amazing job of transforming the judiciary as much as he possibly can. He's worked with great velocity and amazing appointments. That's probably upset them. Would they break the Senate to do that? I'm not sure. But would they break the Senate to deny Joe Biden a, a Supreme Court pick? I would say yes. I wonder what you think, Matt. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. I think you're right to raise the concern, which is why I, we're literally, thank you, you're fitting this in. People who are watching this on video can see you're running between commitments. But I wanted to bring you on because you're bringing this up. And I think this is the question that we're going to turn to, again, appropriately, after the recognition of which is going to be ongoing and, and well-deserved of what Dianne Feinstein has meant to America. We're going to have to, hand in hand with that, consider this very real possibility. I can affirm for you, that is the Senate rule. You need 60 votes to place a new senator onto a committee. And this is the issue that came up when Senator Feinstein had a prolonged post-shingles recovery and that kept her away from the Senate for several months. This came up six months ago. It was back in April. And at that time, Democrats proposed a temporary replacement on the Judiciary Committee, and Republicans blocked it. They would not agree to it. 
And without that, they therefore had the ability to deadlock nominations in the Judiciary Committee, which means that they could not advance. That's just, that's the process, that's the procedure yep. involved. And so on the one hand, minutes ago, Mitch McConnell gave a heartfelt, I believe him, a heartfelt, impassioned statement on the floor of the Senate about how much he values Senator Feinstein, how much he cared about her. Those of us who were fortunate to call Diane our colleague can say we served alongside the longest serving female senator in American history. Diane was a trailblazer in her beloved home state of California and our entire nation are better for her dogged advocacy and diligent service. And I believe that's real. On the other hand, we are just a few months past seeing Republicans do this. And it was on a temporary basis at the time. But I would just submit to you the following pieces of evidence. Number one, Mitch McConnell brazenly did this in 2016 with Merrick Garland. He refused to hold hearings that would allow Merrick Garland to have his nomination to the U.S. Supreme Court considered. Therefore, it got bottled up and he was not appointed to the Supreme Court. And then he called his shot and said he would do the reverse if another opening came up when Trump was president. And that's exactly what he did. 30 days before an election, jammed through the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett. And that's why we have that flip on the Supreme Court. He has done this, and he has done it without any regard for the concern you raised that it might blow up the Senate forever. He was like, okay. And the polling, too. The polling was like 70% that there should be a hearings about Garland. And he didn't care if there was no real backlash for it. Just went through right. Because in, in the state he represents and in the states that his colleagues, his Republican colleagues represent, you can get away with that. And given the Senate map in 2024 and the fact that it so advantages the Republican Party, there is a good chance that he's going to look at the polling data and say, we are not going to pay an election penalty for doing this. And then I would also just submit as a piece of evidence, look at what's happening this week. Just yesterday, the Republicans held the most shameful hearing in the history of the U.S. House, their trumped-up impeachment inquiry without evidence, without a shred of evidence, with Republicans themselves saying, we have nothing to stand on here. We're just doing this to muddy the waters for Donald Trump. And tomorrow, there's an almost 100% certainty that they're going to shut down the U.S. government. Again, because Donald Trump believes that by doing that, it will slow down the prosecutions and trials that he is facing on the 91 felony counts that he's been indicted under. He's wrong about that. It will not slow those things down. And Republicans know that, but they're doing his bidding anyway. So talk about blowing up the U.S. government. Republicans have shown with Merrick Garland, with Amy Coney Barrett, that they're willing to blow up the Senate, with the impeachment inquiry, that they're willing to blow up the Constitution. And now with the U.S. government shutdown, that they're willing to take away paychecks from 4 million Americans just to appease Donald Trump's delusional fantasy. I think we're right to be concerned here that they might do this maneuver and not seat a new senator on judiciary and try to bottle up all Biden judges through the reelect in, in 2024. Yeah. I, 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 Mark Joseph Stern, who's a writer for Slate, was saying this is irresponsible. This is what Republicans threatened. They, they took the step to block the temporary replacement. They said, we will not replace her. If, you, if she retires, we will not replace her at the time. That was the kind of the big argument there. So they, this was an environment, Republicans are basically trying to get Newsom to not 
pressure her to retire, to not replace her. I think they don't care about the Senate. They, they don't think they're going to win a Senate seat in California. They don't care about that whatsoever. There's a bunch of reasons why they would have no concern about doing it. The only concern they would have about it is, can they functionally run the Senate then if Democrats can force them to do it with 51 votes? And they'd be glad to do that. If they think they're going to have the presidency and they think they're going to have 50 votes in the Senate, they'd be in perpetuity. They would be glad to blow it up. Now, if they don't think that's a possibility, then they might think, how important is this to us? And the one thing is McConnell's been so effective at swinging the balance of the courts. They have six seats. They actually have a seat to burn. So would they do this for one seat in the Supreme Court? I think they probably would just because they, the entire reason that the Republican Party exists is to control the part, to control the country through the Supreme Court. But you could argue there that they wouldn't go against it. So I don't want to normalize this. This is something that shouldn't even be a debate. That's another thing is we shouldn't be talking about this now because we should be marking the, the legacy of dying fights. We shouldn't be talking about this because we should have a functional Republican Party that wants to have a Republican, small R Republican government that functions the way that it has throughout history. They're not that party though. And we can't pretend they're that party. And we have to be aware that whatever we did in 2016 didn't work. And if it's going to happen this time, we have to change the tactics and be prepared to escalate the tactics this time around. I would just to build on that, after 147 Republicans voted to overturn the 2020 election alongside Donald Trump to, again, fulfill his insane fantasy about the election, after Donald Trump led an insurrection, he led an insurrection to overturn American democracy. How can we question whether there are any lengths that they wouldn't go to, that was a double negative. How can we have any doubt that they would go this far? I don't see how we can. Now, there are voices out there on Twitter, serious analysts saying they will not do this. This is a bridge too far. But I think you raise the key question, like the key secondary question, you raised the first key question. The key secondary question is, as Mitch McConnell looks ahead of him and he says, in 2024, there is a very high chance that Republicans take back the Senate. So if I make this move and I say, no, we won't do this, then what's the counter move that Democrats can make? They can essentially end the filibuster. They can essentially just try to end the filibuster. Now they can't unilaterally, they can't unilaterally do that. They could change the rules for how nominations proceed to the floor. They, they could try to stick that through. Essentially, it would turn into a Senate. Mitch McConnell could very easily look at that and say, there is no political downside for me here because either Democrats succeed in making this change and then I inherit it in a year. And now I control a Senate where precedent is a bare majority gets to do whatever the hell we want with no restraint or Democrats fail, but the Senate is in chaos. And Whenever there's chaos, what voters hear is it's a plague on both their houses. Yeah. It's a mess. They don't like it. And they punish the party in charge. It does not help Democrats. And so I'll just raise one other, one other point. I know we got to get you out of here. Let's not forget that Mitch McCall is right past his own set of health scares. He's yeah. had a couple of frozen moments. I have no idea what's going on in his head, but he's probably at this moment thinking about What's his future? What's his legacy? And we know that he cares a lot about what you just said, judges. That's his legacy. Yeah. And if this is his opportunity, he gets to be majority leader for a few more years, and he gets to maybe preside over a Senate that has that kind of power for his party, for his agenda. 
I think he's going to be very tempted to take it. I hope we're wrong about this. I really do. Yeah. There's the, I, I believe there's an escape valve here is that with 50 plus one, you can do whatever he wants. So let's say you can't get 60 votes to do this. Then you need every Democrat. And that includes Joe Manchin. That includes Bob Menendez. And, and that includes Kirsten Sinema. Independent. You need those 50 plus, you need at least... You can't only lose one of them, I think, right? You could lose one of them and you still have the vice presidents, but you would need all of them to agree to break this. And this is ultimately what you're saying. It's in the line of, of eliminating the filibuster and it's setting the precedent for the end of the filibuster, which is something that Manchin and Sinema have been very clear they're not interested in doing. You would need one other Republican to step in to be there. Is Lisa the person who does that? There's possibilities that can happen here that, 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 that also McConnell has to factor in here if he's going to go for that. But uh, I'm telling you, if there's a Supreme Court, we're going to find out very soon the health of the Supreme Court justice, the right-leaning ones. And, uh, we know that Amy Conner Barrett's fine. We know that Kavanaugh's fine. We know Gorsuch is fine. But the other ones, we're going to find out how well Republican, they're reporting their, their wellness to the other members right. of their party. It's, yeah. I guess we should close on this. Yeah. I agree with your earlier statement. It's so horrible that we're having this conversation <laughs> in the same breath as the conversation about everything that Dianne Feinstein achieved for America. And I feel terrible about it. And yet I know that it's incredibly important for everything that she cared about in her legacy, for, for everything that she fought for 30 years in the US Senate. I feel confident that she would want us to be having this conversation because for Republicans to cynically exploit her passing, to try to do this maneuver and blow up the US Senate and bottle up the Biden judicial appointment schedule would be the ultimate insult to everything she stood for. And so we're in this position. We need to talk about it because it's very real. Again, I hope we're wrong. I hope, yeah, like we're not doing I, I was this. Dead limit. I, I can admit I was wrong about it, but I've been right about a lot of things. I was right that we still have some debate about this. The GOP primary ended in February. I've been right about a few big things, but the, I would love to be wrong about this one. Let this be the thing I'm wrong about. This. I hope we're wrong yeah. about this. And yeah. I, we're not putting this out to grab attention and be provocative. We're putting this out because after years of analyzing and being in politics, we think that this is real. And we think and that anything that reminds Democrats how important the judiciary is and tells people what a good job that Joe Biden has done to appoint people to the judiciary is, is important for interparty morale and our sense of mission. So I think that that speaks for why we should be talking about it as well. Look, let's turn this onto a hopeful note as we get out. Maybe if there's something, if there's one last piece of legacy that Dianne Feinstein will leave us, maybe the heartfelt sentiments that we're hearing from Republicans will help them get over kind of the blind partisanship. And maybe this will be a temporary concern. And by next week, it'll be like, no, we're, we're, we're all good. And maybe they'll do that as part of a, let's do what's right. Let's do something for her and for what's right for the Senate and, and for America. Maybe that will be another piece that she will contribute. On that hopeful note, I know we've got to get you out. Thanks, thanks for taking a few minutes, an incredible legacy for America in Dianne Feinstein and hopefully a, a passing worry for the two of us and those who observe politics.